Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. This week on the podcast, we were lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Clarence Wong. Dr. Wong is an interventional gastroenterologist at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, and he gave us a master class on his approach to large polyps and polypectomies. In addition, we talked about a number of other work that he's done around screening guidelines for colon cancer, as well as his many simple yet super effective tips and tricks for improving the quality of your colonoscopies. As always, we look forward to your comments, thoughts, and suggestions. Dr. Wong, thank you so much for joining us on Cold Steel. It's really an honor and a pleasure to have you. You are the first gastroenterologist we've had on this surgical podcast. Um, so please tell us a little bit about where you grew up and, and your training pathway. Yeah, well, well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really honored to be the first gastroenterologist on, and, and I hope my, I uh, do the rest of my, my colleagues some, some service. But um, I actually, um, some of my colleagues know this, but I grew up in Calgary. And so if I can relate back, I, I watched the Flames play in the Corral. I was volunteering the, uh, the Olympics in Calgary. So I am a so-called Alberta boy. But I did come to med school in, in Edmonton at U of A, and then I did my internal medicine at McMaster and I think that was really important because I really learned some strong fundamentals about evidence-based medicine before coming back to Edmonton to do uh, gastroenterology in terms of the fellowship. But afterwards I did um, a number of years uh, in at the Cross, so I did oncology, um, uh, not only in a wet lab but for some time and then I also did therapeutics endoscopy, um, uh, some in Edmonton but uh, some of it was in, was in Quebec uh, learning ultrasound. Uh, so I've I've been around a few places. So it's been it's been nice, and I've been very lucky to have trained in, in multiple areas. Yeah, it's it's so true. We talk about that often on the podcast. How helpful it is to do different components of your training over time in different places. Just to, you know, I mean, meeting people is one thing, but just seeing different ways that things can be done expands your your brain. I think for a career, there's no doubt. My biggest question for yeah. for you, Doctor Wong, mm -hmm. though, is: uh, Are you a Flames fan or are you a Oilers fan? How's oh, that? I'm still, I, I've got red in my closet. Oh, geez. Hey. So, you, so you, you and I are flipped. I grew up in Edmonton and, of course, now live in Calgary, and uh, I cannot cheer for the Flames <laughs> for the life of me. just can't do it. Although I have softened because, you know, when you live in a place long enough. Uh, Your kids. You know, yeah. It is gets to be one and two. My, my kids are Flames fans, actually, and they were born oh, in Edmonton. Wow. So it's actually quite, quite interesting. But I totally agree with you. I think for trainees, I tell them the most important thing and the, and the biggest luxury that you have training in in Canada is that you have access to different places. You have access internationally. I think we're really lucky. And, and I always tell someone, if you train one place, I always see that as you know, just a little bit of a question mark. Obviously, you can be great, but you know, there's just so many different points of view. And I think it rounds you as a, as a professional when you do it that, that way. Yeah, professional and a human being, there's no mm -hmm. doubt. Um, you know, you're very well known, not only provincially, but nationally for, for a whole bunch of things. But one of the things in particular we wanted to touch on was the screening guidelines uh, for colorectal cancer in, in Alberta, in particular, your view and the evolution of the FIT test um, from the FOBT traditionally. So I guess, how did that come about? What do those guidelines look like? And give us a sense for, for a, a, you know, a silly general surgeon like, like me, how good that FIT test really is. In other words, I remember one of your talks, you, you had mentioned, uh, you know, if your FIT test is positive, you should find some sort of lesion this, this proportion of time. 
Right, right. So it, it you know, it's it's within our short careers that people forget how um, poor colon cancer screening rates were. So um, I was reviewing some of my own talks and, and back in probably 10, 15 years ago, the 2005 kind of report card on colon cancer screening, Alberta was at about 25% of the target population for screening. Like, like that is just um, astoundingly terrible in terms wow. of uh, a disease that's completely preventable. Um, and as we all know, every colon cancer, it, from my point of view, is, is, is almost a, a preventable disease. So if we jump forward, you know, back then it was, it was kind of, you know, do a little bit of FOBT, guaiac, do a little bit of endoscopy, maybe doing some, some barium. And I think at the end of the day, it confused everybody and, and no one got screened. And so for the last probably, um, you know, the next probably five, 10 years after that, we knew that FIT or fecal immunical chemical testing was available. It wasn't quite um, in Canada yet, but in Japan and in Europe, they were using it. Um, and from some of their literature, it was astounding to see the, the increase. So we actually brought over a number of, of experts. One I remember it was uh, Graham Young who's from Australia, who, who runs the Australian program. Um, and he really just gave us the pearls and, and kind of the whys because, uh, as you know, we, a lot of us in terms of GIN and in surgery were saying, no, we should just stick to colonoscopy, it's the gold standard, why would you even look at something else? Uh, but the, the most important screening test in any field is the one that gets done. And I think uh, what we forget about uh, guaiac and colonoscopy is that, number one, the FOB guaiac Patients didn't like to do it. It was on three separate days. Uh, you couldn't um, have certain dietary things and, and do it. And the other problem with the colonoscopy is obviously it's access. Um, so if you went on a colonoscopy model, sure, the person in front of you or, or the one that, that lucky to get the scope would get screened, but a large proportion of the population wouldn't. And so the FIT was actually a, a good answer to that. It was certainly the, the sensitivity wasn't as high as colonoscopy, but it was, it was miles better than an Aguayac. And the patients preferred it so much. It was so much easier. It was, you know, one test, it was done. And the overall kind of the accuracy rate on one test was 80%. And so if you did that over time, the, the, the FIT test was, was actually very accurate and picked up a lot of lesions. I think one of the interesting things that you mentioned is that when you're making these screening guidelines, it, it's not just you know, how many colon cancers uh, have we prevented or how much more, uh, you know, preventable mortality have we averted? There's all these other considerations that go into it, like, you know, how easy is this for patients to do or how, how easy is it for patients to get access to this test? And, you know, there's, there's, there's a ton of uh, considerations that must go through your head and, and everyone else who, who is uh, involved in making these screening guidelines. Can you talk to us a little bit about what are the considerations that go into making screening guidelines like this on a provincial level? Like me mechanistically, what does this look like? What are the considerations and, uh, you know, how does this get rolled out? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think it's one of those things that if you asked me, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, um, probably when I was much more naive, it was, you know, look at the evidence and follow the evidence. That's what I would have said. But the truth is, there's many things that when you look at the evidence, you also have to realize, is it applicable to your zone? Is it, um, is it doable from both a professional point of view from your uh, uh, endoscopy community and also from primary care? And so I think, you know, when we actually start to form and look at the, the committees and the, and the guidelines, the, that stakeholder input was so critical. Um, and as you both know, if you look at the, the, the evidence and the guidelines, there is room to shift. And, and, you know, my teachers back at Mac, when they taught me the same thing, says not everything is an RCT. And in fact, most evidence out there is not an RCT. So you have to realize how to make it the best, you know, applicable and, and useful for your group. And so when we were designing this, I, I think, you know, uh, having primary care at the table, having, you know, patient groups and, and, and hearing their voice, um, having community and also academic endoscopists, I, I think the, the that set of voices in and everybody had their viewpoint, but how to actually streamline that together 
to make one uniform set of guidelines was really important. Now, now the FIT, we knew the evidence was strong, and that was you know trying to convince people. But even going back to what Dr. Ball had asked about the uh, pickup rate, so we know that when your fit test is positive, the chances that you'll find at least an adenoma is about two thirds of the time, which is astounding. And so, I know that when we started the test, we had a whole bunch of people that were finishing the colonoscopy and then they would go back and do it again right away and go to seek them because Clarence I didn't find something I was worried and this is a 50 year old with a first time positive fit and so it changes the perspective of the, of the endoscopist uh, immediately and the second part is again listening to the public is that if you gave it to them and they didn't like it then your test it doesn't matter what the sensitivity is they actually had to, to, to do it. And what we found is that the patients by far, when we did the comparison studies, were much more willing to do this test at home. It still has that little bit of the yuck factor because it's a poop test. But you know, the way that we advertise, and, and that's the one part that I, I really learned as part of the screening program is that uh, what were our advertising tactics? You know, what were we doing uh, in terms of um, uh, of design? Uh, and so I learned a lot from our designers and people that are actually actually in, in, in arts and public health. And so again, it was a blend. I, I knew what the, the, the strong evidence was, but I think it was all these other groups that actually were really important to make you know the, the guidelines complete um, and actually make it so that it's accessible. And I think that was part of the reason that I think actually in Alberta, we, we've actually done really well. Well, um, one of the things we were going to touch on a little bit uh, is the fact that the U.S. Preventative Task Force has now lowered the screening age for average risk individuals to the age of 45. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, I guess there's two parts to this. One is sort of building off your, your, your answer to the last question, which is what are the sort of things that you think about now when making a shift like that? Like, for example, where does cost fit into uh, these screening guidelines, because I'm sure that, you know, any of these changes that we make have a cost associated with them. And how, sort of how do you think about that and how do you sell that um, on a provincial level? And then the second part of that is is specifically about this uh, age 45. Do you think that's sort of the way that we should be going in Alberta as well? Okay, so uh, yeah, so two things there. So, so first of all, it was the ACS that actually made that recommendation for so the American Cancer Society. And so they published actually quite a controversial guideline. Uh, and with that, they actually showed some data showing that there was, a, it looked like a time shift over, t uh, you know, that younger individuals were, were getting cancer. And so they actually made, it, it was very odd and very confusing. They made a conditional recommendation. And, and I don't see that too many times in guidelines. They said, we conditionally recommend that you uh, start at 45. So in other places, the, among the big um, GI societies in the U.S., um, in Canada, uh, every province, um, including the Canadian Task Force, we, we still at this time stuck with 50. So I just published um, a review with um, uh, Academic Primary Care with um, uh, Mike Kolber, and we actually looked at our Alberta data and compared it to uh, a number of other studies. And so what it does show is that there is a, um, a relative increase in that younger group. However, when you looked at the absolute numbers, the absolute numbers were actually quite small. There were, you know, four or five per 10,000 at most. And actually, actually, maybe I even misspoke, it might even be even smaller than that. So again, linking back to your cost question is that, yes, we could start at 45, but for the number of people that we would have to screen, um, and that we would actually have to, you know, have fit tests and go through colonoscopies. That same amount of money, if we applied that to 70-year-olds and actually encouraged them to get screening, we would actually save the system 10 times more trying to encourage the 70-year-old group to actually get screened. And so those are things that we do look at. You know, it, it is, you know, being an endoscopist um, and taking a different part of my brain and, and being part of the public health kind of brain, is you do have to say what's the best for you know the, the system. The other part about colonoscopy, which is as you know, is is different from doing mammography screening for breast cancer, is that every endoscopy may potentially take out a case that's uh, for diagnostic care. You know, somebody with colitis or somebody with you know bleeding, and so it's really important to balance that those two apart, and that your screening programs aren't actually taken away from diagnostic and therapeutic care. And so I think all of that, you got to try to find the balance is what's the most bang for your buck in terms of the age 
and what's the best that you can do to ensure you know as much safety as you can for the public and i think that's what we've been trying to balance and it's an ongoing thing you know this is something that when it came up you know we chatted across the country at every with every other screening program to get everyone's sense of where we were going. And I think right now, we all are agreeing that, that we're seeing the slight trend, but it's not enough, we think, to change the guidelines in Canada. Yeah, it's such an interesting and fascinating um, area uh, to kind of think about. Um, I did want to specifically, while we're t still talking about screening guidelines, um, one of the things that I think gets confusing for trainees, especially surgical residents, um, studying for their, their Royal College exam is, kind of getting their mind around intervals for uh, for screening. So let's say, um, you know, you, you've done a colonoscopy, you've found a certain number of polyps, a certain number of types of polyps, and then you're trying to figure out what the uh, interval should be for a repeat endoscopy. Is there sort of a, an approach that you have in your head that you teach trainees that, that helps people to remember this? Uh, and uh, are there any helpful sort of guidelines or or resources that you point people towards? No, a, a great question. I think that fundamentally to, to make it a little bit more binary to start with uh, is we recommend that you, when you actually remove or see polyps, separate into low risk kind of polyps or adenomas and the high risk adenomas or polyps. Uh, now I think once you have that split, it really, um, it's actually separating even in further in terms of, of how you manage these patients. So the standard, you know, you, you see a patient with a six millimeter adenoma, you know, that's a low risk adenoma. And, and actually the evidence is showing that the high majority of the time, even if you never remove that polyp, you probably did change that person's lifespan. Um, and so even though you might feel great, okay, I took off, you know, one or two of these little polyps, uh, frankly, they, they probably don't. And in fact, the guidelines are shifting for that is that if it's a low-risk adenoma, again, it's less than a centimeter, there's only one or two of them, um, and the patient has no other uh, family history or other risk factors, a lot of places around the world are actually shifting to the next interval being an FIT screen. So in Alberta, the current guidelines are still, uh, if you see a low-risk adenoma, repeat the colonoscopy in five to 10 years, so even a longer interval. And in, in Ontario, they've actually made the switch to say that if you removed a low-risk adenoma, uh, just go with FIT testing in five years. Now, it was controversial in Ontario. Certainly a lot of people uh, were shocked to move that way. But if you actually looked at the evidence, the amount of, of life years that you would gain um, from repeating colonoscopy, let's say at every five-year intervals, it starts to actually get into a point where are you actually you know, causing someone to enter the system more and potentially complications rather than saving, the, saving them the risk of colon cancer. Now, the most important thing, again, the other part, again, of the, of the binary set is the high-risk adenoma, the high-risk polyp. And so I make all my residents, you know, right from the first year that I see them memorize, you know, what's a high-risk adenoma. And there's a couple of criteria, you know, it, does it have anything that the pathologist says is um, high-grade dysplasia? or intramucosal carcinoma? Is it over a centimeter in size? Are there three or more of them per, that you found uh, during the time of colonoscopy? Um, and do they have any villous elements? And once you have any one of those criteria, most of the guidelines would tell you that that's a set that you have to be more careful about. That's probably a group of patients that you need to bring back at least within three years, if not shorter. So in fact, if you know most of us that see routine polyps, that actually is the group you should concentrate on, not the one or two small adenomas and you just tell the patient to come back in five years. So we actually did um, a study in Edmonton where we actually looked at interval rates among uh, GIs um, looking at the recommendations and it was kind of all over the board. It was uh, even for the high-risk lesions, uh, a third of them actually brought them back too early, a third of them were, were at the right time, and a third of them, to me the most scary stat was the third of them were late. So I, I really think that the education is, again, low risk or high risk, and then make sure that those high risk ones come back early. And anything that's over two centimeters is an advanced lesion. And that one is that if you're doing any sort of uh, uh, piecemeal resection or that, it needs to come back within six months. And there's many guidelines for erection now saying that if it's over two centimeters and it's flat, you should be sending to endoscopist that actually has extra training. And so that's something even within the GI community that we're trying to stress. 
Can I ask you in particular about serrated adenomas and, and how they maybe differ from run-of-the-mill adenomas? Right, that, that's a great question. That's probably one of the, the most confusing things that's come up in the last uh, 10 years. And actually, I've given a number of talks even to primary care. Because for primary care, all of a sudden, they're starting to see these reports come through. This is, oh, sessile serrated adenoma or polyp. What, what is this and how do, how do you deal with it? I, I think the significance of, of the SSP um, or SSA, as we'll call them, is that they, they are funny, is that they do have some elements that look like a hyperplastic polyp, but they actually do have some, some areas that actually look like an adenoma. And I think that's why there's a crossover. But the, the, the main issue with them is that when you look at studies that actually um, look for um, full resection and recurrence, SSAs, these SL serrated adenomas, always have higher remnants. And so it's actually quite uh, scary. There's one study done that even, you know, um, if you're looking at residual polyp, uh, when you're moving an SSA over a centimeter, a third of the time there's going to be some remnant polyp left. And so it needs to be taken, you know, with a higher degree of, um, uh, you know, care. The other thing about SSAs is that we think that they probably are, are linked to those higher rates of a right-sided colon cancer. They, they tend to be flat. They can be very hard to visualize. And if your bowel prep isn't perfect, if you don't, you know, if you're not nice and careful, that's one of those things that you'll miss. Um, and even uh, in those cases where, where people ask me about even things like CT colonography, I say, well, you know, the one issue about CT is that it would absolutely miss um, sessile serrated adenomas because they're so flat. And this is where a really careful endoscopist um, that's taking their time, that's the best defense about finding these lesions. Um, we find that I think for most people that are looking for these, um, you you have to make sure that you you wash the, the 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 lining well. They can be covered with mucus, and you just think it's a bit of mucus, and underneath is a large flat uh, polyp. You know, since you you mentioned it, we were going to ask specifically about CT colonography. What where does that fit in in general in terms of test performance, maybe beyond serrated adenomas, and then. I'm also curious what the variability, if you, if, you, if you know, sort of across the country would be in terms of using CT colonography. And the reason I ask, of course, in Alberta, it's extremely challenging for a, a primary care practitioner to order that out of the gate. It sort of has to come through GI or through surgery to, to obtain. Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And I remember um, back... Uh, in Edmonton, the Cross, we were one of the first centers to have CT colon. You know, that was again, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago. And, and the funny thing is that we used to do a case and you'd go home, you'd let the computer chug for eight hours to generate one set of images. And then my joke is, you know, Pixar came along with, you know, higher chip speeds and computers, and now you're, you're flipping these, you know, so much faster. But I still think, you know, if you look at the, the, um, the evidence going back, if it's a, a polypoid, you know, a, a pedunculated polyp, something that has a good sessile mass, CT colon is, is pretty good at picking those up. And so most of the guidelines will say, you know, something that's over six millimeters in size and at least sessile, uh, the rates of, of confidence are actually not bad. They're actually pretty good. Again, the, the biggest downfall has been, you know, these, these SSAs. And we actually think that the SSAs are a big cause of, of probably right-sided cancers. Now, in terms of across the country and kind of accessibility, you're right, it does vary quite a bit. And in most cases, I would say that we're recommending uh, CT colon in, in cases where uh, the optical colonoscopy is, is not possible. So very redundant bowel, you can't reach the right side. Um, I've had a couple pa uh, patients that are, have had radiation and uh, strictured the, the left colon and you can't see. I think those cases for sure. But in terms of that other sense, if you're going to order it for screening, I don't think that um, we're there yet. I don't think um, many places around the world would, would actually reach for that as, as a primary tool. Uh, some societies do recommend that's one of your uh, you know, a mix of possible things. But again, I think unless your center was really dedicated and had radiologists really committed to that, you know, sticking with a simple plan of FIT and then colonoscopy is simpler, it's easier, and I would say there's more evidence uh, to that. 
So as you know too, Dr. Bob, you know, in, in Calgary, because you can buy your own, you have some patients that are buying their own CT colon. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, if there's anything that's found, they're reprepping again, because we're not there yet to have somebody prep for a CT colon and then have them have their optical colonoscopy at the same time. So those are a lot of things that even when I discuss this with my patient, they'll say, you know what, I don't want to do prep twice. I think I'll just wait and just do the optical. So we wanted to shift gears a little bit and, and talk about something that we were we were chatting about a little bit before we we went on air, um, which is sort of how how we can um, maximize the the collaboration and the the coordination between gastroenterology and general surgery, because uh, I think one of the big issues um, that remains uh, uh, particularly a, a problem or, or I should say just a reality in Canada is that. Most of the colonoscopies being performed across the country are still being performed by general surgery. And, um, you know, I, I'm curious about what your thoughts are about um, how we can improve the quality of the endoscopy that's being done across the country. You know, like how much is enough volume in residency uh, for general surgery residents to, to be confident that once they go out into practice, they're doing a high quality job and, and, and they're doing good quality colonoscopies. Do you think it's a, is it a volume issue that they need a certain number? Uh, is there, are there other things besides volume that you think need to, to happen? What are you, sort of your thoughts about uh, general surgery training, uh, in, particularly within endoscopy? Right. No, it's a, it's a great uh, point of question. Um, to me, um, for, for sure, if, if you look at the statistics and going across, um, general surgery takes care of a high majority of patients, not only in Alberta, but around the country. And oftentimes, they are also the, the main endoscopists in more rural settings. And so when we were looking at our grid map uh, at where colonoscopy was done, it's pretty obvious that what you have to do is you have to make sure that all endoscopists, whether it be general surgery, sometimes even primary care or GI, are you know aware of the the proper metrics or actually trained up and, and i always said that my goal when i was um, uh, the head of uh, colon cancer screening is that we need everybody you know uh, scaled up to to that certain high level um, that being said i do think that in the, in the community that uh, endoscopies are done well you know that's generally when i look at the, the stats um, getting in, I think you're right, is the hardest part. And, and what I find is that that initial transition from training to the first few years of practice, um, that can be where uh, it's, it's trickiest and it's hardest for people. So in terms of numbers, you know, we've we bantered around numbers and around GI and general surgery for a long time. You know, you know some groups like I think American Board of Surgery have, you have lower numbers like, like 50. Some people up here say you have to have 200. And I think we're getting away from that 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 straight number because because as you and I know it when you're doing the procedure there are some people that have a much um, pick quicker knack of picking it up um, some need more time and with you know something like colonoscopy there's many things there's the technical elements but the other part for me that's also important is is that visual elements are you know even though you can reach the cecum in four minutes. Uh, are you do, are, do you have enough of a visual history that you can actually pick up lesions? And, and to me, that probably is, is more of an important skill that you learn over time. So I think what we're moving to, and I'm sure surgery as well, um, I was just on you know meetings this week, is, is really competency by design and observe colonoscopy. And I think that's a much uh, better tool to actually assess uh, how somebody's doing. Um, so, for example, for our GI trainees, now we're actually looking at a number of really set metrics, not just numbers. So we have a trainee, if they, for example, did 100 colonoscopies, but their tip control wasn't still good, we're actually using that as a metric to say, you know what, we're not going to pass you on this level yet until you can actually show that you've got some better tip control, you're not, you know, pushing a lot of redundant uh, scopes, that you're actually are showing the ability to stay centered. So I don't know exactly how, how surgery is thinking to this, but I really think that that's, to me, an evening field uh, among all different groups that are doing endoscopy, is that we should be actually assessing competence. And I think any experienced endoscopist, whether you're in general surgery or GI, you'll have a pretty good idea when you watch someone do an endoscopy whether they're going to be competent or not. And then to really break down, so, you know, it's what I call conscious competence, right? It's being said is, do you know what you're doing that's good? And do you not know what you're doing is good? And then the other way around that, you know, what you don't know, you don't know. And so I think when we're teaching now and I'm assessing trainees for, for endoscopy, those are the things that I'm trying to, 
you know, tell them, teach them is that, you know, do you realize that, you know, you, you're, you weren't looking at that step or do you realize that, you know, you may be a little bit fast and did you see enough? Um, what do you think about that lesion? You know, could we talk about that quickly for a second? So I think we're probably going to move past the straight numbers thing because, and in fact, I think if we do that well among all endoscopists, you know, we're going to be training much better endoscopists, whether they be gastroenterologists or, or general surgeons. So um, I think, you know, I was quite, I would say I was not skeptical, but I was on the fence about the competency by design. But actually now that we've got a few years and I'm training the GI residents, I'm, I feel that I actually am a little bit more on top of them in, ter uh, in terms of actually giving them direction instead of just saying, oh, you know, what, what are your numbers today? And you did six, so okay, that's okay. This is a maybe a bit of a controversial or, or difficult to answer question, but I'm curious if you if you have general surgery residents come rotate with you and do scopes with you. And, and what do you think are the big things that maybe um, differ in the way that uh, GI sort of approaches scopes versus general surgery, or or maybe that that distinction doesn't really exist. Yeah, I I think that's a good good point. Uh, so we used to train a lot of general surgeons uh, doing that. In fact, it was one of our at our, at our sites. You know, one of the our, our pride things is that we did train people across. And unfortunately, it's it was more of a numbers game rather than you know who was training who. Um, we were actually having troubles getting. Uh, enough time for, for trainees to come through. Um, in terms of the differences, you're right, as I think that um, um, if, if you look at how people are um, uh, thinking about what's happening at the end, it's, it's, that, it's that after part. It's that how are you continuing to improve your skills? How are you actually uh, picking up maybe uh, newer techniques? Are you using, you know, the most... Um, um, are you using the most uh, up-to-date equipment? Uh, those are things that um, I think are uh, more important than, than just looking at, at how you're, you're getting trained. So for example, one of the things that, you know, as I've done reviews across the province is that um, I looked at, you know, what your equipment, and I had some places that were using, you know, two generation old scopes. So I said, it doesn't matter how good of an endoscopist you are, you're actually using old equipment. And why wasn't that part of, you know, your assessment of, of what you, you were doing? Um, the other part is, I, I think when we were having our uh, general surgery residents even come through, I was actually much more adamant to say, you know, you should do a bit of consults, you know, you know look at the cognitive end, and that actually will help you in terms of the endoscopy, because... Um, that'll actually show you, you know, what you're seeing and how that actually applies back. So that may be the, the other big difference is that certainly if you're on a GI service, you're going to see, uh, you know, those types of pathologies um, that you might not see uh, on, on just the general surgery service. And so I actually think that if we could to have endoscopists uh, go both ways, I always said that the other going the other way is that I really wanted my GI residents to do a bit of a general surgery rotation. I thought that I was actually really helpful for that group that did that as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's, that's well said and it, it speaks to collaboration moving forward, which, uh, you know, I agree with you, I, I think is getting better and better over time. Having said that, regardless of whether you're on the surgical side or the medical side, and you, you did touch on it a little bit, what are the key quality metrics that we should think of as standard, whether we're running a colonoscopy program in Timmins, Ontario, or Medicine Hat, Alberta, or in Edmonton at the U of A in a big quaternary care facility? What, what are the sort of the, the, the basic minimums, the bread and butter? Okay, so you know it, it's it's really uh, funny you mentioned that. You know when I was doing uh, the tours around the province and looking at how people were doing endoscopy, and trying to mention that, it's really a lot of basic things. So um, starting a, a a database, starting to look at what you're doing, um, whether I went to Edmonton, Calgary, or Grand Prairie, one of the most basic questions I asked was, "What is your indication for endoscopy?" So similar to what surgeons are doing for ACATs, you know, we don't have that yet for colonoscopy, but why are you doing it? And, and I think if you can start to even answer that and have some principles, that is probably the most important thing. And I think for surgeons, you're, you're right, is that you wouldn't ever think about a surgery unless that indication was absolutely correct. And so, why is it a different rule for endoscopy? You know, you really should be sure why you're you're doing it before just jumping in. And so that question, even in my time, has still not been answered. And so one of my big pushes over the last uh, one or two years has actually been pushing that 
uh, uh, that indications and, and that set of coding. And so we actually are going to push that endoscopy is on the ACADS list, and we're actually looking at that set of guidelines um, to answer that. So that's the first of all. So why are you doing it? And, you know, is that the indication appropriate? I think the next thing is obviously most people think about um, technique and metrics. So they think about, you know, sequel intubation rate, um, time and time in and time out. But obviously the other part is, is that it doesn't matter how many times you hit the cecum or how many, you know, how fast or slow you are. If you're not detecting cancers, you know, that by itself, it doesn't matter what, what your level is going in. And so the basic kind of technical things that we measure for most people are how many times you reach the cecum, um, you know, obviously what's your complication rate. Uh, what is your sedation rate because we're moving for that and then on the other end which is the more difficult part is looking at what you're finding so um, what's your adenoma detection rate um, if, if you don't have a pathology report to go through what's your polyp detection rate and at the end the most important part as, as part of a screening program it's what's your cancer detection rate uh, we actually looked at it a little bit differently we um, issued provincial report cards that we're trying to replicate, but we did issue a one-time uh, assessment of post-colonoscopy colon cancers. So these are ones that you would have um, had a colonoscopy for, but within you know six months to three years afterwards that, that you actually a cancer appeared. So by definition, it might have been missed on that index. But those are the things I think to, to really think about broadly uh, for, for most people that are doing this. Again, count why you're doing it look at some of the technical aspects, but then third, look at your results. Because otherwise, you know, and going back to that, that issue about the volume, some of the people with super high volumes weren't necessarily the best ones at, at detecting cancer. And, and so those things actually have to be separated. And I think we have to be good in all three of those spheres, you know, choose the right patients, do the right technique, find the right lesions. I think that's really a good way of kind of thinking about it because I think you know even when we when I when I think in my mind about quality metrics in colonoscopy I'm always thinking about you know sequel intubation rate and and ADR but you're so right that there's there's step one is who who, who are you even choosing to to do a colonoscopy on because that's really where where you uh, the, the the decision is made is even before they get in the endoscopy suite. Um, you know, it's interesting. In BC, they've started this um, directed observation of procedure skills, or DOPS. I think I messed up the acronym, but basically, they have a program in place where they actually will come and observe you doing colonoscopy, and you have to get that every certain number of years um, as sort of a as a uh, quality check and and to make sure that you're sort of up to up to par. Do you think that's something that we should be moving towards? In Alberta, and and what do you think are the sort of the the benefits and p potentially some of the the barriers to doing something like that uh, across a province? Right. Yeah. Yeah. The DOPS has done BC has has been an extremely well. Um, and I've talked to their, their cancer uh, head, which is uh, Dr. Jan Telfer. I think she's done an amazing job. Uh, and the reason that I think it works really well in BC is that it's a wide collection of, of different groups. So it's not GI, it's GI and general surgery. It's not just academic, it's academic and people in the community. And they actually took some people from the city and some people in the rural. So the committee was really mixed. And their mandate, you know, when you're setting something like this, you've got to be really careful what you set your mandate on. Theirs was really more set on improvement and actually skills enhancement rather than being kind of like the uh, police force. And I'm going to come in and tell you who's going to be able to do endoscopy and who's not going to be. Um, and I think when, when you set it at, at that type of mandate, you know, people that I've gone through and I've looked through their reviews, that everyone that comes through that says, you know, it's a little bit scary, you know, having two or three of your colleagues watch you, but at the end of the day, I'm a better endoscopist because I got, you know, really good directed feedback. Um, it was good constructive things for me to work on. And it really highlighted to that group that, you know, and I think Dr. Ball mentioned this earlier, that things change and techniques change. And if you're just working in your own little center and nobody ever comes in and, and actually shows you how something else different is done, how, how can you pick this up? Um, for me personally, I'm, I'm a much different endoscopist than I was when I finished training. 
and I would say that every year I learn something else a little bit new, you know, some other little technique. Even the way that I'm holding an endoscope now is different than I was when I finished. And so these are things that actually have evolved with time. Uh, the DOPS really helps that because it's a really um, you know, broken down way of, of how you're actually you know, positioning the patient, positioning your endoscope. You know, what are some real metrics of how you're actually visualizing the, the mucosa? Um, and so I think that it's, you know, if we can adopt it, it, it's a really great way of number one, assessing who can come into the system. And number two, that it's a nice check as you're, you know, every two to three years to actually do this. Uh, the biggest problem with DOPS is cost. I, I think, you know, these things don't happen, unfortunately, for free. You're, you're taking out some very experienced individuals and you're ha having them go to different communities to do this. And so I think that is the biggest challenge. But at the end of the day, and if you look at how they've done it in BC, uh, every place that they've gone through, you know, people have been so happy about the results. And again, if, if your base um, thought is that people are good endoscopists and they're carrying out there and you want to improve them, this is a, how I think you should do it, you know, you know, to have a good DOPS. So in Alberta, we, we try to do more of a multidisciplinary kind of uh, endoscopy conference. That's the kind of the closest thing we have. But I, I really think that we need to be moving towards the DOPS model. It's just, again, one of the things that I have my list of trying to convince um, our, our uh, health authority that, that you know, this is a good investment of money. I think that's so well said. And you're, you know, I, I couldn't agree more, to be quite frank. You know, mentored observation or whatever term you want to apply to it is is critical to improvement, but it does require some humility and some self-confidence and some willingness to try and get better. You know, I would love for someone like you to come and watch me do a colonoscopy and, and tweak me. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, a really neat article that Atua Gawande wrote, uh, you know, from, from Boston where he was doing an endocrine procedure and he had a very senior, recently retired surgeon just come in and this sort of icon of surgery was taking a million and one pages of notes and he was thinking, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? And, you know, he beautifully, as, as only he can do, describes that, um, pro that process and that experience and how much it improved his operating. And that was just sort of one exposure. And I, I think we all um, probably should, should seek those opportunities a lot more than we do. Um, the, one of the things you had mentioned was sort of defining an advanced polyp. Um, and I'm curious how you assess resectability for an advanced polyp, you know, with the understanding that you're a very skilled interventional gastroenterologist with a skill set that not only will exceed, obviously, most gastroenterologists, but the vast majority of surgeons. So I, I'm curious how, how you look at that. And, and really what I'm getting at is if I'm doing colonoscopies in High River or, um, again, going to go back to Timmins, Ontario, wh when should you stop? In other words, when, when should you, you, you pull the chute and send that patient off to somebody like you with, with a, a vast array of skills and knowledge and, and to be quite honest, probably different uh, equipment uh, on occasion as well? Right. No, that's a great, uh, great question. It's something that, you know, when we cover at our conferences, we talk about a lot. Um, and there are actually um, fairly recent guidelines uh, from the USPSTF actually on, on, on surveillance, but also there was another subgroup that actually looked at uh, polypectomy performance. And from the evidence, it's really, really clear um, that if you're looking at a lesion over two centimeters of size, it should be considered an advanced lesion. And in fact, for in the colon, if it's you know, sessile-ish in terms of there, or, or at least semi-pedunculated large, that's something like that we're calling an LST or a lateral spreading tumor. Um, and once you get into that, that range of two centimeters, you should be uh, sending it off to somebody with more experience. Now, even in our, in our community, in our GI community, we're having a difficulty of, of convincing some people to do that. But, you know, some of the things for an advanced endoscopist to look at is, is number one, is just in the amount of time and experience we have looking at uh, the lesion. Uh, most of us across the country that, that deal with mucosal lesions, whether it be in the esophagus, stomach, or colon, say so that, you know what, before we jump in and you're looking for snares or whatever else, look at it under, you know, careful, um, high-definition endoscopy. Use the chromo or virtual chromo endoscopy. Now, most people don't even know where the narrowband imaging button is on their endoscopes. Look at that 
assess it and then think about, you know, are there elements maybe of deeper cancer? Because the biggest mistake I think for most people is starting a resection uh, and then abandoning it. And that's probably the most common type of, I would say, a, a bit of a mistake that I see from the uh, referrals coming in in the city or from the periphery is that people get into it and they realize they're in trouble. Um, it's never, you know, other than the patients um, having to prep again, it's never wrong to pause, to look at it, take pictures, bring it back out, and then just tell the patient, you know what, we got to book this back again and do this right. I think if you're looking at a standard 30 or 40 minute time slot and you're trying to resect a two centimeter pulp, almost any expert across the field will tell you you don't have enough time to do that correctly and safely. Uh, whereas if I get one of those lesions, I will book off the time to make sure I'm actually just being careful, looking at it, and actually using those techniques. So as a good general rule, uh, if you're looking at a sessile lesion over two centimeters, you should be really careful about um, uh, not tackling at that time. The second issue is about biopsy. Now in the uh, therapeutic field, there is some kind of uh, a bit of, I would say, controversy of what to do. Uh, some of the, I think what I call them the purists, because I obviously don't agree with them, would say, you know, never biopsy them, just, you know, maybe tattoo distally and send it off. The problem with that approach is that I've had some people send me cancers. And so that patient's been waiting to see me for one to two months. I take a look and I say, oh, I wish the biopsy was done because that's clearly a cancer. That's not a resectable lesion. Mm -hmm. The other way or the other problem is that some people really go at it with the biopsies and they biopsy it so much that they actually tack it down. Um, and so my kind of compromise is, as I'm telling people when they're looking at these, you know what, take a look take a bite, just you know, one or two bites of the areas that you're most worried about, if I'm not you know, close around or accessible, um, and then like say, tattoo distally. And that's actually the other part too. And I, and I think I was doing actually a study with uh, one of your residents in Calgary. Uh, there's a number of people that are still tattooing under the lesion, which completely wrecks all resectability planes. And so those are the things kind of to think about before sending it on. Uh, the other thing too is just take pictures, like take lots of pictures. Um, it's, you, you say, you, you probably won't be surprised, but I get these referrals, you know, large polyp and rectum. You know, what does that mean? <laughs> How am I supposed to triage that and get a sense of you know, that person should do a full prep? Should I bring them down from, you know, again, uh, high level, uh, book for two hours or just book that for 15 minutes for a SIG? And so all these things, and, and in Ontario, what they did is actually they did a checklist uh, when you're looking at large polyps, and I think maybe that's one of the approaches that we may need to take in Alberta as well. Uh, that's that, that's very well said, and you know, again, in, in full disclosure, that there's almost nothing worse, I think, maybe than being engaged in a colonoscopy and trying to take out something piecemeal, and as you say, being halfway through it and realizing you shouldn't be doing it. That's yes. an experience I think that that none of us want to feel at any point. Yeah, for therapeutic endoscopists, and I teach my fellows that just remember you got yourself into this. So number one, you got to get yourself out of it. Or number two, you got to ask yourself, why did you make that first cut? And, and was this the right time to do it? So we, we've talked a lot about kind of assessing these advanced polyps. Uh, I'm curious, and we, we, we chatted a little bit about this before we started recording again. But, um, you know, one of the things that, they, that was started in Calgary was this advanced polyp uh, committee where big polypectomies or rather big polyps that were being considered either for uh, some kind of advanced endoscopic procedure or for a formal surgical resection were actually being reviewed on a regular basis by a multidisciplinary committee consisting of uh, gastroenterology and surgery and they would actually review these polyps uh, before a decision was made do you think sort of that's the way that we should be going um and, uh, and, and sort of what are your thoughts about how we can improve um, our ability to, to make the right decision uh, on an individualized basis, basis for these patients? Yeah, I, I, I totally back that. I, I think that is absolutely the way to go. Uh, like I was talking with Dr. Ball on this, is that in the cancer field, you'd always make some multidisciplinary decision of what to do. You know, before I put an esophageal stent, I'm talking to the radiation oncologist, I'm talking to the thoracic surgeon, you know, who, what order, what should we do? And I think there's really no difference with these large polyps. You know, they are early neoplastic lesions. Um, I tell my, uh, my fellows when they're with me that, you know what, you screw up the resection, you could have screwed up the planes and all the staging. And so I think the approach right from the beginning has to be multidisciplinary. 
as well, there, there's choice. And I think there's not necessarily a wrong answer of which way you go. You just need to have an idea of which stepwise way, you know, that you're going to approach things. So, for example, a large rectal lesion, like I say, it could be TEMS. But now we have ESD. So which one, you know, is, is better than the other? Um, uh, and, and, and as well, in your center, you may have someone that actually, you know, does a lot of these or not. So I really think that whether it be in the colon for clonic large lesions or even in the upper GI tract uh, that you should have a good uh, multidisciplinary team. So for myself I do a lot of um, upper GI resections as well. You know we've been doing uh, Barrett's and resections of, of early esophageal cancers for uh, well over a decade almost 20 years now but I would say that my most important partner is thoracic surgery. So we discuss all of these lesions and whether I should do it or not whether they should do it a lot of times it's funny, they're pushing me to do it and I'm saying, I'm not sure I should be doing this. Uh, but I think you need that healthy back and forth to really make the best plan for your patients. And that when I'm telling them and I'm sitting them in clinic, I said, just to let you know, we've had about four brains think about your case uh, and have tried to give you the best recommendation. And, and so I think the more collaboration that there is, the better outcome there's gonna be for patients. And and also the other part too is that I feel like I'm, I'm backed up in every one of these cases. You know, it's not just me. Um, you know, we've gone through this, I've tried my best, and if, you know, it goes well, or if it doesn't, at least you've got your team behind you to say, you know what, we made the best choice possible with what we knew. Yeah, it's amazing how much of, of surgery and medicine is going towards that kind of model, and I really think that uh, just is, is so important for us to break down our silos and, and reach across these traditional divides, geographic divides in our minds, um, so that we can really give the best care for our patients. Uh, I know this is a, this is a big topic, and uh, you've given a, us a great talk on this for the residents uh, in Calgary w when I was there. Uh, but I did want to get your sort of your tips and tricks for the difficult polypectomies. Can you walk us through uh, when you're looking at a, a, a sort of an advanced lesion uh, like we talked about? What are your sort of tips and tricks on on how to approach it? And and I'm and I want all the details like. You know, are there any positioning tricks, snare tricks, and and uh, even even down to things like um, should we be using coag versus cut? Um, so if you could if you could give us some some tips and tricks, that would be fantastic. Sure. So you know, so I would say the most common thing that most of us are going to see is probably that eight to you know ten millimeter polyp. So let's say the one centimeter polyp, and that's that's a good polyp that anybody should reasonably tackle and do well. So I think number one is, again, it's all about positioning because it doesn't matter how good you are with your hands or snare. If that pull-up is in the wrong spot or it's sitting in a pool of fluid, you're not going to have a good resection. Um, I, I'm referred lesions that say, you know, one centimeter pull-up, and then you could tell that, you know, you didn't look behind the fold, and behind the fold, there's another three centimeters. And so that's just a matter of, again, that you don't need a therapeutic endoscopist. It's taking the time to really look at it and to position it well. In most cases, the number one thing that I look at for, for uh, you know, where a pull-up is, is try to move it to the six o'clock position that by far is the easiest way with, with the instruments coming out of a, a standard colonoscope. And the next is that if there's fluid in that, in that plane, I will turn the patient. And so use gravity to help you flip it so that the fluid is actually going away from the polyp. And the other part too is that when you resect the polyp, it's also gonna fall into that pool. So it's not gonna sit within the same area. So number one is get your positioning right. The next thing is that, again, your, your choice of a snare, you need to really know your equipment. Um, I, I bug my uh, therapeutic fellows all the time. Tell me what snare you're, you're choosing and why. You know, is it a cold snare? Is it thin wire? Is it a medium snare? You know, does it actually got, have a hexagonal edge? You know, is it just, you know, a, a standard a band? There's such variety now that, you know, when I first trained, it was like you're given a snare and there's like the one snare. Now there's potentially, even in a lot of departments, it could be five, six, you know, seven different types of snares. So choose the one that's going to fit the, the lesion uh, that you can resect. A lot of time now, just to be honest, is that I'm using the thin wire cold snares. I think that's really been revolutionary in this field. It's really changed how uh, we approach polyps. Um, so even up to a centimeter uh, a polyp if it's sessile, I'll go at it with a cold snare. I won't even use heat anymore. So that's really, really changed. Uh, the next point about injection, uh, there's been a lot of evolution in this field as well. So, so number one, with the large uh, lesions, and these are the, again, two centimeters or more, 
Um, we're actually recommending a viscous fluid injection. So if your unit doesn't have it, then it's Volivan. But there's actually two commercial products available. So there's actually in Canada, we're really lucky to have something called Eleview and the other one called Orise. And in all the studies that have looked at viscous submucosal injection, you have actually less complications, less residual polyp, uh, better ability to actually res resect um, uh, the entire lesion. Um, for a one centimeter lesion, if you think you can do it fairly, you know, with a reasonable amount of time, saline is fine, but I always tint it with methylene blue. I think to me that that's a really important uh, step because that little bit of blue tinting helps you see whether you've got actually the entire edge. And then when you've made the cut to make sure that you're not perforated, you know, the, in, and through, through muscle. Um, there is some evidence to show that if you put dilute um, epinephrine, you know, one in 100,000, it may prevent post-polypectomy bleeding. Most one centimeter polyps, I wouldn't do that. The larger ones, I'm actually starting to do that. Um, we talked a little bit about the hot and cold. I, I'm saving the hots more for against the larger ones, but for almost anything a centimeter and under, by far, you know, cold polypectomy with the new thin wires, it is the way to go. And in studies, it's safer and it allows for a cleaner inspection of the edge. I think you'll actually leave uh, less polyp. Uh, you asked me about the um, electrosurgical unit. So, so number one, make sure that you are using a, an electrosurgical unit that's actually computerized. There shouldn't be too many of those old uh, uh, Valley Lab type of units out there. And in most cases, for the cut, we're using what's called the endocut cut function. I think that um, you know a lot of us that started with coag, but the problem with coag is that you can really transmit a lot of energy deep to the muscle. Um, and so the rule is, you know, get the cut first, and then if you have to, you can use what's called soft coag on the edges to make sure that that you don't leave any remnants behind. So I think that's kind of the you know, kind of the top to bottom. Uh, what I think about for for most approach positioning. And in most cases now, I would say that the cold snare has really revolutionized um, how we're actually uh, moving polyps. What are some of the avenues that we can uh, maybe engage in or pursue as average general surgeons um, to try and improve our skills and improve our technique and improve our endoscopy units, regardless of where we're located? Yeah, so... I I think there's a couple of things that can be done, and, and certainly uh, in the province when I was going around trying to, to help endoscopists get better, and again, it'd be general surgery, GI, uh, internists, or primary care, anyone doing endoscopy. Number one is that in, in Alberta, we, we're, we do run an um, endoscopy skills course, so actually my, my co-chair is actually a um, family physician, Mike Colbert, who does uh, endoscopy out of Peace River. And we've actually done a very inclusive um, curriculum, you know, it's general surgery, again, primary care, some GIs that come. And actually, when people get there, they realize that, you know what, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where you came from. We're all endoscopists, we're all trying to get better. And, and the faculty that I bring in, they love this group. They said, you know, at sometimes it's even better than a full GI group because this whole group just wants to learn and, and they want to be collaborative. And so again, learning from each other, um, and one of the stories was, you know, why, why do you have that thing dangling at the end of your scope? Well, that's a different trap. Oh, I never saw, saw that before, you know. So learning these little tips and tricks with, with each other. The other part is, is probably a formal course. And again, we're lucky in Canada that the uh, Canadian Association of Gastroenterology, and I think they've actually got a, uh, a partnership with CAGS about this, is there's a, um, a colonoscopy improvement course, so it's called the C course, and they actually have a polypectomy course as well. And this is a really designed, you know, uh, focused, um, observed endoscopy with a set of skills. I've done it myself. Um, again, it's daunting to have a couple of your, your colleagues watch you, but at the end of the day, you know, you come up with a slightly different golf swing. It's sometimes a little bit hard to, to do it right away, but I have no doubt that, you know, when I did that, I, I came out as a better endoscopist at the end. Uh, and just always remember that, you know, as you said, you know, the equipment and the skills are changing. The field is not static. You know, what you learned 15 years ago, if you haven't changed, is probably out of date. You know, the, what we're teaching now uh, is is way different than, than when I first started. So I think really look at these courses. They're worth the time. And the other, if you don't have it, is that to go to some of these endoscopy courses, which we actually do have available, whether in Alberta, I know they do it in some other provinces as well. Uh, but really, you know, talk to your colleagues about, about things like technique because um, I think bringing it in the open and talking about it, you will learn a lot uh, from your colleagues. Thanks once again, Dr. Wong, for such a brilliant masterclass uh, on all things endoscopy. 
just in closing, um, if there was anything that you could tell the average general surgeon about colonoscopies that, that you've noticed from, from watching people across the province that maybe is not that intuitive, what would those things be, um, you know, besides all the things that we've already talked about? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. So, so it's interesting that, you know, again, most people, I think, think about skill and, and, and sequel intubation and things like that. And, and so, in fact, I think it's actually the opposite is that most endoscopists I see in the province are very astute and very good at, at reaching the cecum. I think two of the things that they don't think about are all the ancillary things. So, so one of the, the projects that we took on with the province is actually harmonizing bowel preps. Uh, I, I hate to say it, a non-sexy project, no one thinks about it. But when you actually look at post-colonoscopy colon cancers, one of the highest reasons that people got it was that their bowel preps were poor. And so, you know, people think about their, their technique and skill, but did you actually look at your, your bowel preps? Like, why did you choose it? Is it evidence-based? Is it because your preceptor told you to use it? You know, is it printed in 10-point font that your 73-year-old patient can't read? So that by itself may improve your, your pickup rate more than anything else that, that I can teach you. Uh, and so our um, harmonized bowel preps were actually done again um, with a designer looking at the evidence, looking at the balance. We had actually patient input into this uh, design um, and, and overall uh, tips and tricks of how to actually drink the preps. Um, and so it was done with the best possible uh, evidence there. So I think number one, is just think about um, using the right preps. The second part is, is you know, I think the other biggest change with endoscopy, like anything else, is really t just just take the time to actually withdraw slowly. And uh, the evidence is really clear about that. And I've, you know, when the evidence first came out, we had a number of people that were uh, kind of wondering, oh, well, I'm very careful in inserting, but it is really clear, you know, a slow withdrawal will pick up. Uh, from the cecum will pick up more lesions. So I tell people, just take your time. You know, we shouldn't be racing in and racing out and running to the next case. Is if you're going to do this, make sure that you withdraw slow. Uh, and if your unit doesn't have it already, use CO2 because your patients are going to be so much more comfortable uh, if you do it that way. So I think if you think about those two things, uh, other than just uh, insertion, it's going to make you a better endoscopist uh, without actually even attending course to start with. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.